Welcome to Chasing Compliance, the global regulatory podcast, where we discuss all aspects of medical device and pharmaceutical regulatory strategy from bench to bedside. We are excited to officially announce the initiation of the Global Clinical Evaluation Report, or CER, internship program. And to celebrate this milestone, we thought it would be fitting to take a slight detour from our normal content and chat with a few global CER writers about their transition from academia or industry into regulatory writing. I will be interviewing four writers as part of this two-part series. In part one of this series, we'll be chatting with Beth Meyer, one of the leaders on the internship program about the internship program itself, and with Dan Scheide, a senior reader on the clinical and CER teams. We developed our CER writing internship program to provide talented scientists, clinicians, engineers, and medical professionals with a clear and structured pathway to enter the in-demand world of CER writing and regulatory writing in general. Beth will discuss the internship in more detail, but this is a 12-month, full-time, paid training program designed to teach novice writers the skills and techniques to become a top-notch CER writer. These writers will work closely with experienced instructors in an inquiry-based, engaging curriculum to develop competency in all areas of the CER writing process and to gain an understanding of the related regulations and guidelines. By the end of the internship program, successful interns are prepared to take ownership of their own CER projects. You may be thinking, okay, wait, Jamie, what's a CER? Well, let's take a couple of steps back. Prior to receiving approval for use in the European Union, or EU, medical device manufacturers must submit a clinical evaluation report, or CER. For the majority of devices, these reports are submitted to notified bodies, which review these documents and grant CE marking, which allows them the device to be sold and used in EU member markets. Once approved, device manufacturers are required to regularly update and resubmit these documents to demonstrate continued compliance. And the interval of these resubmissions varies with the risk classification of the device. The CER itself is a collection of technical documentation, clinical evidence, a review of the state of the art, and critical analysis of the risk, safety, and performance of the device. Often these documents are several hundred pages in length and contain information from a wide variety of sources, from design validation and verification reports to published literature and from risk documentation to manufacturer-sponsored clinical and preclinical data. We are gonna discuss this a bit more with our first guest on the show, Beth Meyer. Beth Meyer is a senior writer in the medical device team and she's the lead mentor for the internship program. Beth transitioned into regulatory writing after completing a PhD in engineering and biomedical engineering from Wayne State University. Let's welcome Beth to the show. Hey Beth, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Absolutely, thanks for having me. You're here to give us a little bit of information about the exciting new internship that Global's starting. But before we jump into that, can you tell me a little bit about why you got into regulatory writing and what you enjoy about it? Absolutely. So I initially got into regulatory writing because in my graduate school program, um, we were encouraged to look at some some different pathways, um, some different opportunities that might be available to us beyond the kind of traditional complete your PhD, go be a professor somewhere after your postdoc, that sort of thing. And so I did some work with the American Institute for Medical and Biological Engineering's Public Policy Institute. And that's where I really developed an interest in regulations and public policy. 
And then from there, that transition to CER writing was basically just taking the opposite side of what I had worked on in graduate school. And so it was a really exciting opportunity for me. I think what I like most about it is that there are so many moving pieces in regulatory writing that your day-to-day work is always different, but it's always interesting. So sometimes you're doing you know, background research on some, you know, some new and interesting device. Some days you're doing background research on you know, the field that that device is used in. Some days you're analyzing data. Some days you're screening articles. It's always different, but it's always interesting. And at the end of the day, you feel like you're doing something really important that's actually going to have an effect on people's lives. So it's very rewarding in that sense as well. So you have worked with a team of people to develop an internship program designed to train people how to write CERs. Very exciting project. It must have been really neat kind of being at the helm. Can you give us a little bit more information about the internship? Can you tell us a little bit more about the internship itself? Absolutely. So the internship program idea kind of came about because we found at Global that there was a little bit of a difficulty with getting enough people with the right skill set to kind of hit the ground running. So we had been originally adopting this, this uh, approach of having new folks come on. They would work with a senior writer individually, and that senior writer would kind of train them on the side. And you know, as people, I think, especially nowadays are finding out that doing your full-time job while trying to teach somebody else, it, it's it's a lot to handle and it's a lot that we are asking of our senior writers. And so what we thought might be better is if we had a dedicated team to really make their focus on growing, growing new writers and making sure that they were all learning the same things in an organized fashion. So that when we, you know, release them into the world of CER writing, so to speak, they already hit the ground running. They knew how things worked at Global. They knew how things worked with our clients and they were really ready to make an impact from day one. This internship program in a lot of ways is a is a truly unique, almost vocational program that, at least to my knowledge, there isn't really anything quite like this out there. Um, so we can be pro, you know, providing this this unique resource in this really high demand area. So hopefully, you know, contributing to the field in that way as well. It's kind of funny to think about vocational school after doing a doctorate or or master's in something. But yeah, no, that's totally what it is. It's, it's, it's like a really short postdoc that you actually get a skill set, right? Not that you don't get a skill set in a postdoc, but it's kind of like, you're still not honed on one thing necessarily all the time. All right. Mm -hmm. So now to the nuts and bolts, meat and potatoes, how does the internship work? Is it paid? And what's the time commitment? All right. So the internship program, starting off with the most important part, the internship program is absolutely paid. We anticipate it to effectively be a full-time position for our interns. The format of the internship program is we have a year to turn to turn our interns into you know fully competent, awesome writers. Um, during that first six months of the program, what we'll do is we'll be working with the interns in almost more of a traditional education classroom style um, style part of training where we'll have, I don't like to think of them as lectures. I like to think of them as discussions so that we're actually learning and developing ideas together. Um, But they'll have those lectures. They'll have assignments. They'll have times to practice their skills in a controlled environment without those looming deadlines and client expectations. It's kind of our our safe space to, to develop these skills. Then after that six month time point, um, we'll have expected them to actually have written a CER from scratch. So this is not a client CER. This is a a mock CER, a practice CER, but they'll have that chance to showcase all of their skills in that capstone project that we're calling it. 
And then after that point, once they've completed that CER, we will then assign them to a mentor who they will work with very closely to learn some of those skills that come with working with clients, working with their specific needs, with their specific vices, and learning those types of skills that you can't really learn in a classroom. So we expect this to be about 12 months altogether from start to finish. And by the end, we expect these folks to be able to write their own CERs pretty much on their own. What I think is so cool about this is that there's a structured curriculum. You get to work on real world projects and you don't have the real world pressure of deadlines. So you can take your time, learn how to do things. I mean, not forever on everything. The, the curriculum itself is fairly aggressive. And if anybody listening to this has questions about the curriculum, it's laid out on the global careers page and um, on a couple other places on the website. I'll be linking to that in the episode description so you can find some more information. So what do you think is the most valuable aspect of this internship? People in this internship are going to learn a lot about CERs, a lot about EU medical device regulations, but that seems it could for someone looking into this seem like this is a really niche topic and that there won't be a lot of potential job prospects outside of this. Um, say they wanted to transition out of global after the internship is over. Yeah. And I could understand why someone might be concerned about that, but what I always think about is any sort of experience in the medical field or in regulations are probably two of the most valuable areas that you can invest time and effort to familiarize yourself with because those are fields that are not going to go away. And so, yes, while learning how to write a CR may sound like a really, really specific skill set, there are aspects of CER writing that apply itself to engineering, to research, to medical science, to um, manufacturing, to regulatory affairs. So wherever you want to go, if you think it's even sort of peripherally related to the medical field, this is going to be a good use of your time. And now certainly we want folks who are interested in CR writing and regulations um, relating to medical devices but this is going to be a skill set that will translate very readily to a number of fields, in, in my opinion, at least. Well, and what's cool about it, and like I mentioned in the introduction, the clinical evaluation report or CER draws on basically every regulatory document for a specific medical device. I mean, there are inputs from all aspects of regulatory affairs, not all aspects and not every document, but in the process of writing these, you get exposed to so many aspects. Whereas if you went into, you know, risk management, your focus would be a little bit more narrow. This is kind of like, this is the, the CER is the, is the one document that notified bodies base approval of medical devices on. So it needs to at least mention, if not describe all aspects of uh, the com the compliance strategy for a device. And through that, you get exposed to so many things. And it, it's, it's much better, in my opinion, than just kind of passively looking. You could you could get a job somewhere in regulatory affairs and kind of dig through and look through all the documents. Maybe you don't help create it, but you could, you know, access them and read it. It's not the same as reviewing it critically. 
and understanding that at the end of the day, you and your teammates are going to sign their name to this one of your teammates, but you as a team collectively, and you are responsible for this. So you want to make sure that it's all correct. Um, and so you, you just, it, there's a little bit more skin in the game when you're taking a look at these documents. So you learn them a little bit better. I remember the first time I saw a hazard analysis and just, it was way over my head. And then over time with great help from my friends at global, you know, learned how to read these documents and, and really evaluate them. And I don't think that you get that opportunity working in the context of other parts of the quality management or regulatory system. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I know from so in my in my, my previous life, um, I was a design engineer, and having written design, you know, verification, design validation report, I can tell you that my perspective on those documents has changed dramatically since being a CR writer and understanding the purpose of those documents and how they're used in the regulatory aspect. So even if you do have a background in some of these areas, looking at it from that holistic approach and using that combined information from all these different source docs to create one really defining document um, does does give a, a very interesting and powerful perspective on, uh, on all those aspects that you mentioned. Absolutely. And I think another thing that people don't discuss that much is regulatory medical writing and regulatory writing in general is a really nice career. Um, no, you're not doing Nobel prize winning science and no, you know, you don't get the, the acuity of being an ER physician, but there's really stable hours. It can be extremely lucrative. It's very stable because regulations are not going anywhere. In fact, they just get harder and harder. Um, and the need for experts in the field just becomes greater and greater. There was a point in time where, conceivably almost anyone could write a CER effectively um, with enough time and training and reading the regulations deeply. Now it's, it's, it's an art and a science and it's, you definitely need some expertise. And um, these are so many pieces that go into this and there's so much more of scrutiny and nuance in the regulation. And so people listening to this may be thinking, Oh, you know, if it's so complicated, then maybe I should just go get a master's or a PhD in some type of regulatory affairs program. But I think this is a better option than doing that. What do you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, maybe I'm a little bit biased, but I'm definitely inclined to agree with you. And my thinking behind that is this is an opportunity to get not only education, but also targeted, meaningful experience that can directly translate into a career and I'm sure I'm not the only one who's had this experience, but, you know, regardless of your education level experience, experience is king. Experience trumps a lot. So if you have an opportunity to get paid for, for starters, you know, you're not going into debt doing this. You're getting paid to do this. You're getting an education and you're getting, you know, uh, you know, effectively a job opportunity in some in some capacity. Um, that to me sounds like a, a pretty good deal. And that, I mean, that to me sounds like a, the approach I would want to take. Yeah. I mean, I wish I would have had something like this around me when I was completing my PhD because I started looking for jobs six to eight months before I defended and kind of realized, uh Oh, like I don't want to go into academia and I don't have experience in anything in particular. And what I've heard and found to be true for myself is as soon as you get in the door and you get, you know, six, 12 months of experience, you're in. 
right? You're, mm-hmm. and, and you can jump to a different company in a different role. And, 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 you know, oftentimes you can be trained to do new things, but just having that rubber stamp from somebody, especially working for a really kind of a niche in demand skill set and for a remote company, right? You can always go in house from remote, but it's hard to go in house to remote, right? Do you want to be vetted by somebody to make sure you're not just going to be watching TV and on the couch all day, right? You're going to actually do work, which we very rarely have any problems with, but this gives you experience in a remote role with really, really excellent people. And it gives you a bona fide skill set as soon as you graduate from the program, as opposed to a master's, which is going to be, you know, much more broad and you don't actually as often have the opportunity to get into the meat and potatoes of writing and constructing these documents, thinking about regulatory strategy on how to address things. Um, you know, all of those aspects you learn about them from like a big picture standpoint, you may do projects here and there, but this is real world experience and it's a training program. That's essentially half of the time of a master's degree. So it's like, you know, it's, it's, you get, you get so much more training in a specific area than you would be able to in a traditional, like a uh, didactic program. Yeah, absolutely. So who would you recommend to apply and how should they apply? So as far as how folks should apply, I would suggest they go to Global's website, which I know you've mentioned that you'll you'll plug into the podcast as well. And on the careers page, there is a page there that describes all the details of the internship program. So anyone listening can you know take that time to review what the program's all about, what the structure looks like in a little bit more detail. And then at the bottom, there's a link to apply. So I'd recommend taking that route. And as far as who should apply, I would suggest anybody with a background in any sort of um, biological science, writing, math, or engineering background who's interested in this program um, should should consider applying. We do uh, we are interested, I know, in folks with master's and doctoral degrees, but I would highly recommend anyone with an interest to at least apply. So if they apply, what's the process after that? Sure. So after you apply, um. Obviously, we'll, we'll take a look at we'll take a look at your resume. We'll re, we'll reach out to folks that we think would would be possibly be a good fit for the program. There is a writing test that takes a look at several aspects of clinical writing and medical writing that we would use those skills um, within the internship program and beyond. And then folks who do well in their writing tests will uh, sit with them for an interview and talk to them about their interests, and we'll see who might be a good fit for the program. Thanks so much for coming on today, Beth. We really appreciate it. Thanks for giving us some insight into the internship. Before I let you go, do you have anything else you want to add? I don't think so, other than, you know, I'm really excited about this internship program. I think it's going to really act as a great resource, not only for global, but for the field at large. And so I'm really excited to see, you know, who decides that they want to be a part of this. All right. Before I let you go, one last thing. What's your favorite way to spend Friday night? Oh, my favorite way to spend Friday night. Hmm. Usually on Friday nights, I like to go for a swim with a couple of my friends. And then usually pizza is involved at some point. So usually swim, then pizza. So are you the type that likes to leave the office early or get everything done so you don't have to think about it over the weekend? I am usually the type of person is I like to have things done so that when I walk away, I don't have to think about it until Monday morning. So sometimes that's not always possible, but yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Well, thanks again, Beth. I'm pleased to welcome our next guest to the show, Dan Shady. Dan started his scientific career working as an undergraduate research assistant at the University of Pittsburgh. 
He then completed a PhD training program at the University of Michigan. After completing his PhD program, he worked in a number of positions in the private sector and currently works as a senior associate in the clinical team and the CER team at Global. Dan, thanks so much for coming on the show today. We really appreciate it. And I am looking forward to learning a little bit more about how you got into regulatory writing. Um, Before we jump into that topic, though, can you share a little bit more about what drove you to actually earn your professional degree? Yeah, sure. So um, I have always been interested in science from little guy on up. you know, whether it's just kitchen science or, or whatever. And then, you know, really enjoyed, um, watching like old grainy reruns of Mr. Wizard when I was little, I think it was, you know, on and over before my time, but then kind of grew up in the Bill Nye era. Um, and really just was very fascinated by all aspects of science. My, my mom was a RN. My dad worked in a, a cardiac cath lab. My brother even worked at the same hospital, but he was in it. So just always around, uh, science and medicine, um, went to, you know, went through high school, took all of the AP bio and AP physics and AP chemistry that I possibly could and was, was definitely planning on going to do a, a biology major of some sort at, um, at, uh, university of Pittsburgh, decided on molecular biology, biochemistry track, um, and just really found that topic. Uh, continually to be fascinating. And then um, I knew I wanted to try my hand at research. So I I emailed around when I was a sophomore to a couple of different labs and probably made up some lame excuse about why I wanted to, you know, I was so interested in their research and I wanted to work in their lab. Um, and I did get someone to bite and offer me, you know, a position. And it was, um, you know, it was more than just, it was more than just washing dishes. I was able to work with an undergrad, you know, right away on yeast genetics project and and got my hands wet at the bench. And that was pretty awesome. I was able to do research by my senior year, probably 20 hours a week. You know, I graduated in 2008. So I had the fortune of not graduating into a great economy. And so it seemed like a natural fit to just continue with my studies. And, you know, PhD is a pretty good deal when you can continue uh, getting paid and not rack up more school debt. So uh, my wife was finishing her graduate degree at Pitt as well. And so I took a year off uh, to work in an x-ray crystallography lab before eventually getting into the University of Michigan. So that's sort of the the background of my profession. Oh, that's really cool. I didn't know that you did yeast genetics. Yeah, I started working on transcription factors in yeast. And um, that was, I mean, it's very interesting. I didn't, you know, I, I got into it not really knowing what to expect, but um, I was just trying to to characterize how this one protein functioned in, you know, histone modification and transcription regulation. It was really, it was, it was really interesting. And, and I worked for a really good professor who was very, very smart. And she was, she made sure that I was very precise in my language and the way I talked about my research. And so that really set me up well. Uh, for my career to be able to communicate my science, which has come in handy <laughs> in the last. Oh, absolutely! Three years my mentor was the same way. He made a script every presentation that we gave. He was a stickler for you know words mean things. Um, he you know he, even down to we weren't allowed to call anything a relationship. It was a relation, right? A rela- like you know we're friends. Huh. That's a relationship. Like, yeah. So it's just, yeah. <laughs> heaven, forbid I, heaven forbid I ever switch up uh, mutation and substitution. Oh, man, that that's, was, you that's know. <laughs> what was the, what was the transcription <laughs> factor? Deal. 
Uh, it was a part of the PATH-1 complex, so RTF-1 was the particular transcription factor that I was I was studying. The The entire complex um, has five members, and I don't know that I could name all of them right now. Do you know what the human is analog is? That the, <laughs> is it the same thing in humans? Uh, you know, it's been so long. I'd imagine it. I, I don't know. I think I th- maybe. Gotcha. I gotcha. Well, this is so but we're going to we're going to kind of discuss this a little bit in more detail in a second. But Dan came from a hard molecular genetics background. I did my Ph.D. in endovascular endothelial physiology and, and joined a clinical lab for my Ph.D., but came from a hard bench science background and ended up in my Ph.D. focusing mostly on microRNAs and microparticles, which are, you know, microscopic gene regulation things. And I don't do anything with microRNAs anymore, but the skills that I learned in graduate school on being able to, to, th- to think critically, to take complex topics that have a lot of gray area and be able to distill them. I mean, I found that to be terribly helpful. Being able to go through that hardship, <laughs> I think, really prepares you for, for medical writing in a lot of ways. I digress completely thank you for that but but i agree yeah so you know those of you who are out there um that are listening to this thinking oh man i've done my my entire background is in bench research i you know i did drosophila models of you know some esoteric disease and i know everything about you know some one pathway but really not much about everything else it doesn't really matter the intangible skills that you're learning are really what's valuable and uh, we can teach you the rest right that's the key part yeah if you can talk if if you can talk clearly and concisely about a very complex problem that's going to take you a long way. You know, I had the opportunity to present to undergraduates who were new to research, didn't know anything about the bench, and also more more seasoned professors. And And there's a different language for both sets of people. But if you get fluent in, in the language of science and know how to explain, you know, your topic inside and out, that's going to carry you a long way and, and really help you make a yeah, good exactly. impression. So how did you actually find out about regulatory writing or medical writing? And what were your initial impressions? Yeah, I feel like this is going to be, I don't know, maybe not good for the podcast, but uh, I think I found out about medical writing when I was asked to interview for a medical writing position. To be honest, um, I was I was in a place where I was applying around to a lot of positions and, um, you know, I had I didn't have any formal project management experience, but I, I applied to this project manager position because as a scientist, you have some project management skills, usually juggling many different experiments or whatever. And so I got a callback for this from this company, but not for a project manager position. I was asked to um, interview for a medical writing position. And so that was really the first time that I heard about medical writing. And I was, you know, I needed a job. Medical writing sounds fun. What, what is it? <laughs> I didn't say that, but, you know, I played along enough to, to make it to an in-person interview and I still wasn't sure uh, what I was getting into. So I, I think my, I think my first impressions were like, wow, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, am I in over my head? I still don't know what types of documents I'm going to be writing. Like I've written research papers. You know, it, it took a while for me to 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 get you know to the point. I know what I'm writing. Okay, I'm writing clinical research protocols. I'm writing informed consent forms. So that was overwhelming, and I was a little bit like, "This is a big yeah, change it's from where totally I was." Totally different, right? Uh, the 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 culture is different, but it's not bad. I'm glad to hear that 
you had no idea what medical writing was until somebody approached you for a job. I think that that's a really common refrain. Yeah, it makes me feel bad because people ask me, like, how did you get into medical writing? And I'm like, I still don't really know. I don't have a good answer for you. I applied for a job, you know, and I tell people, like, if you're looking, you know, here's maybe some of the job titles that you would look at for an intro introductory position, you know, where they might take someone with a PhD. You're not going to go after a senior writer, but it might say associate writer or junior writer. So, yeah, so I'm glad to hear that you didn't really know about medical writing and you were approached for your first job. I think it's really common. Um, and I think that it's not really clear that this is a huge area that people can work in and a, you know, a really great career path if you're looking for work-life balance, but also to have a fairly lucrative career. The, the, the spotlight's a little less, right? So you're not doing the Nobel Prize winning science every day. But what, you know, what we do as regulatory professionals is absolutely critical for improving the health and well-being of people that use our, you know, pharmaceuticals and medical devices that we work on. You know, so you're really contributing to the greater good. I use my degree every day. I saw microRNAs once, but I use my PhD every single day. It's this is a very viable career path for people with advanced training and you're absolutely not giving up what you've learned. Yeah, I think there's this amorphous idea of science communication. Like I one thing I could do with my PhD is be a science communicator, but no, I don't some reason the medical writing, the the actual job that we do gets doesn't get lumped in there for some reason. People think about like writing articles for, you know, BuzzFeed about the latest, you know, whatever catchy science headline that uh, comes along. But yeah, for some reason medical writing the, the way we do it just doesn't I don't know. You, you would think that someone has to do it. Why isn't it more obvious that it's a career mm-hmm. path? But um, I don't know. I think maybe we need to continue making people aware. <laughs> One of the reasons we're doing uh, a global internship program, baby. We're getting it out there. <laughs> we're getting it out there. We're trying exactly. to, to bring some exactly. people into the fold. No, and I think that medical writing has two arms. And there's, you know, using this roughly and a big picture kind of, you know, allow me some license with the terms themselves semantically, but there's a technical medical writing side and a promotional medical writing side. So we work on the technical or regulatory medical writing side. Very few people actually see what we write. All the documents that we write are confidential and proprietary, um, and they go to notified bodies, which are private organizations which review these documents, or they go to the FDA. Some of these, some pieces of these documents, like summaries of safety and clinical performance, will eventually be publicly available, but very small pieces of that. So having a really, really, really strong writing skills is not always what we're looking for like um, it's more being an effective science communicator, just like you mentioned in the technical side, it's really important to effectively clearly and concisely communicate what needs to be communicated. And it's, it's no frills. It's not, it's not meant to evoke emotion in the reader. It's just the facts, ma'am. 
and we're moving on. And then we also include our own analysis, but the analysis is very clear into the point and not sugarcoated. On the other side, there's promotional medical writing, which involves, you know, advertisements for devices or pharmaceuticals, pamphlets for patients, those types of things. And while we can do those and we do do them at Global to some degree, that's a different skill set and the type of writing is a little bit different. And typically those jobs draw on more of a writing, copy editing background because they're intended to go to a lay audience. You know, everything we write is typically read by experts, but on the promotional side, it's a little different. So there are those two arms just for a little bit of background for everybody. Yeah, I think sometimes the writing can be formulaic, but, you know, that's that's okay because we're trying to we have a very specific thing that we're trying to communicate. And that's that we certify that this device or this drug is is safe and it's okay to put this implant into people. And so, yeah, we're not trying to to be the poet laureate of, you know, the U.S. We're trying to make sure that the data is clear and that we communicate the data. Yeah, that's so, the key point. Yeah, I agree. with what I, And I think when assessment. I when I read things that are are overly verbose or the there's a lot of creative license taken with the writing it makes me a little skeptical that there's something that they're trying to hide personally i like in dance read plenty of my writing i like to be you know very clear and to the point and this was this this was that blah 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 and, you know and i feel nest not feel a little bad for people that have to read it but i mean it's definitely like it's fairly clear and to the point so you mentioned a second ago that you kind of found yourself one day out of the lab writing documents. And I imagine that this transition was pretty, hold on. Jarring. <laughs> like this, tra- this transition was okay. a little bit different than you expected and can be kind of hard. And I think that every medical writing or regulatory writing or technical writing company has their own culture at Global um, where nobody has to wear a suit. You definitely don't have a cubicle. You work wherever you want to because um, you work remotely. And um, we definitely value comfort and just enjoying your job as much as you possibly can. Whether that means if you want to, you know, work. I work. I started when I started working, I would wear button up shirts every day. And, and now it's it's mostly gym shorts and T-shirts. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can I can set the stage for even better. You know, I was working at a startup. I was the first full time employee. Um, I was doing all of the biological research for the company. We were working on something that was really cool. I was getting to fly around to trade shows and try to figure out how we were going to get this product to market. You know, the the founder and CTO was a good. He, I mean, we had become pretty good friends, so. Um, you know, lunch was takeout Chinese and, and, you know, a beer, and then it was back to work. And it was just very, you know, I had a lot of responsibility. I had a lot of say, I had the ear of, of the CTO and the CEO, because I was the bio guy. Um, they were electrical engineers. And so there was a lot, I had a lot of freedom and, and I, you know, I would have, I loved what I was doing and I wanted to do that for the rest of my life or, you know, until the buyout came. But as startups are want to do, you know, I could see the writing on the wall in the earliest spring 2017. And, you know, one day the, the CTO comes to me and says, hey, I, there's no money to pay you next yeah, week. Yeah, that does sound pretty extreme and jarring, certainly. Yeah. And, and now with, with Global, I mean, being able to transition to a much more just a different environment. It's, you know, we're doing the same things, but I'm doing it from my home and, you know, it's, 
it's a different it's a different culture. Every company has a different culture. I fit in better with Global's culture than I did where I was. Um, and so I, you know, I, I love it now. And, and my my impression of the job now is so much different than my first. You know, Would you say months, that you so. can achieve in your role at Global autonomy, some creativity? Do you think that you're being challenged intellectually on a day to day basis or do you kind of feel like an automaton? No, I think every, I mean, coming from a molecular biology background to working on, you know, my first entry into medical writing was on the clinical side of things. And so it's so different than being at the bench and what I was working on. Like you mentioned microRNA, right? I don't, I don't deal with yeast genetics or, or microbes like I did ever really. But now I get to learn all about the the vascular anatomy and, and all these different therapeutic areas that I had never had any experience with. And so that's a, that's intellectually challenging every day. My Google history is ridiculous because I have to look up all these terms and make sure I know which, which bone connects to which, you know, where are these, where are these structures in the body? Is this in scope? Is this out of scope? And that's, that's challenging. And so I don't think I'm an automaton at all. It is, it is challenging and I continue to learn every day. It's just different from what I did as in my PhD, you know, it's much more clinical than, than absolutely. molecular biology. Absolutely. I totally understand that, but it's still, you know, you still get to flex the intellectual muscles. I definitely learn something every day, especially, you know, when I get the opportunity to work on a new project, I mostly stay in the cardiovascular space. And that was my entire scientific backgrounds in the cardiovascular space. I love it, but I definitely get to work on other areas and it's just so much fun to, Get to learn everything about a pathology or or whatever, and, and not only get to have to, right, and have to have that, yeah, yeah. I mean, because you, yeah, you have to quickly get up to speed on these projects, you know, especially as we're working on multiple projects across different areas. You know, you get pulled in to help with yeah some sort of cardiovascular project, and you didn't even know this particular heart anatomy was a thing. You know, they didn't teach you that in intro bio because it wasn't relevant, and now suddenly you're down a Google rabbit hole trying to quickly get up to speed so that you can effectively screen literature and pull out the right data. Yeah. And so in, in three exciting. months, you're an expert in atrial physiology, electrophysiology, right? Like it's, it's wild. It's, it's really neat. <laughs> exactly. So looking back from the beginning of your career to now, would you say that regulatory or medical writing gets easier over time? Does it get harder? And what would you say, we've covered a lot of like things that you enjoy about the job, but what would you say you like most about your job? Um, yeah. So looking back, I will say it, it definitely gets easier. I, you know, I was super comfortable at the bench. If you said, Hey, try this new protocol. I could usually like think my way through it and kind of come up with like, okay, this step's going to be a problem or, you know, maybe I need this particular control. Um, but for some reason, when you first, when I first got into medical writing, like every new document just seemed so daunting and the activation energy was so high. That's like, well, I'm really good at, writing protocols. I don't want to write a CSR because that looks hard. And then you get into it and you just, you have to get over it, do it the first time. And then you're like, Oh, that's how you write a CSR. Okay. I can do that. And then it's, it was the same when I transitioned from clinical into devices. So, you know, it's, it's a different world. There's a lot more, at least in my opinion with devices, I think the writer is, is, 
more responsible for generating a lot more original content. Um, a protocol on the clinical side feels more collaborative to me and CERs are collaborative, but you know, you have to extract the data from the literature. And so it just seems like very daunting, but you work through a couple and you go, okay, I know what goes into these sections. Now I get the general gist. And so, yeah, I think it gets easier every time you do, you know, when you get through a new document type for the first time, and then as you start two, three, four, you've seen what can go wrong, you remember how you fixed it, and it does get easier. There's always issues and new issues, but they seem less um, catastrophic, you know, after you've seen a few things. So, you know, there's the occasional project that's just completely a mess, but that happens in any Absolutely. line. And I couldn't agree with your experience so. more. I mean, that was almost um, verbatim what my experience was, I was, you know, each, each new document seemed daunting until I did it once or twice. And then was like, okay, that there's a system. And I think that we, in a global, at least, you know, there's a lot of tools and a lot of expertise to draw on. And we definitely foster an environment of learning. Like nobody ever gets upset. If you ask a question, nobody, there's no judgment associated with it. Right. So it's, yeah, it's a great. Yeah. I mean, I've, I feel like you and I have had meetings when you were first helping me get started around just like, Hey, I actually have no idea yeah. how to start here. You know, like you just get, you can get, I try not to get paralyzed by, by fear. And I don't, I, I think I'm willing to like jump in, but sometimes I'm like, okay, hold on, pump the brakes. Like maybe I, maybe I need to talk to someone before I get too far into this to make sure I'm on the right page. And at least my experience at global is no question is, uh, is off the off the table you know it's uh it's okay yeah, absolutely so. and i th and i think you know that again we none of us start everyone starts with no experience at some point and everybody at some point learns how to do these things but some people just take to this better than others what do you think are some skills that make great regulatory or medical writers that are you know intangible what do you think uh separates people that are nascently good at this from people that are not and don't enjoy it as much. We can go back to, you know, just the, the getting your advanced degree. You obviously need to be able to think critically. You need to be able to see a project, see a problem and, and try and solve it and think your way out of it. I think if you can do that, even if you come up with a few suggestions and you run them by somebody and they tell you, no, we usually do it this way, you at least need to be able to think critically about your project. Some of the things that I've picked up along the way, you, you really need to be teachable because, again, like you said, we all start off with really no experience. And so you have to be willing to to be trained, to try writing a section, to have someone else go through it who has three, four or five years of experience and just tear it apart. Not not in a mean way, but to show you here's how it's done. You know, this was I see why you did what you did, but this is how it's done. Um, you know, here's a model of how this client likes it. And so you really can't have an ego about it either. You have to just sort of be like, OK, this is part of the learning curve and I'm going to do better next time. And so I think those make someone at least, if not a good writer, a good team player, someone who who can learn to do the job well. You need to have attention to detail because clients expect top notch documents. And if you are making mistakes, it doesn't matter how well you analyze the data, they're going to find the missing periods or typos and and pay attention to that and not the quality of the content. And then I think you just need to be OK with being uncomfortable because it's 
I mean, I think you get that doing research. You, you never know what's coming down. You're at the frontier, you know, the edge of, of knowledge for sometimes you're the only person in the world who actually knows something when you get those results hot off the presses, but there's, you just have to get comfortable with maybe not having all of the answers and, and to keep pushing forward despite that uncomfortability, uncomfortable. You know, that's, How's that? that's perfect. <laughs> you can invent words. You have to be able you, to, invent you have to words. be okay <laughs> with not knowing if your path or your solution or your approach is the correct one. And you need to be able to make decisions with sometimes limited information. It's more like you've got to figure out a way to come up with a strategy when you may have limited information or limited um, data. And that can be a little bit uncomfortable, but there's 10 right ways to do it. There's a hundred wrong ways, but there's definitely several right ways and you just need to find one of them and move and move forward with it. Yeah. Yeah, and your client might want it done a different way, but sometimes it's better to get the wrong thing down on paper than it is to get mm-hmm. nothing down. You know, yep. at least that's a jumping off point or the client can come back and say, All right, we wanna talk more about this and less about that. We wanna pull out these details and highlight this. And at least you you know, you're not staring at a blank page. And and maybe it was hard and uncomfortable for you to get over that hurdle because you were unsure, but take a stab at it, you know. If you're in this job, you're you're a smart person who can who can yep. figure it out. Yep. You know, have confidence in yourself and be okay with. I mean, you didn't know the right answer when you started those experiments, right? And you know, there's many things in advanced professional school. There are many situations where most people are made to feel uncomfortable. So that doesn't necessarily go away. That's not a huge part of your job. And I would definitely say that as you get more experience and more comfortable with things, that happens less and less and less. I very rarely have you know, have trouble figuring out a path for it at this point. Um, and, you know, get into situations where I don't feel great. But, you know, I, when I started, it definitely was like, I don't, you know, it was, it was harder. And there were definitely times that I was uncomfortable. So circling back to something we discussed a little bit earlier, you know, people that just went to graduate school or medical school, may be hesitant to move out of the field or move out of the area that they've just invested a bunch of time and resources into developing an expertise. What other messages do you have for those people? Like, are you completely turning your back on your degree if you jump over to the regulatory or medical writing side? Absolutely not. And I, you know, maybe this answer will make me a pariah in the halls of academia. But um, if the first thing, I mean, general life advice, you just got to stop caring what other, you know, people think. So you're not wasting your degree. I think there's this pressure, especially from some top tier research institutions. And, you know, that if you don't, if you get a PhD and you don't go on to do an academic postdoc and publish four papers and go on to be a tenure track professor, you're somehow a disappointment. And I think that stigma just has to go. It's a strictly a numbers game. I mean, how many PhDs are graduating every year and how many tenure track professors are retiring? The numbers don't match. You know, scientific funding is not a priority uh, right now at the highest levels. So where's the money coming from to, you know, people have to live, people have to eat. Um, if So I I don't see any shame in in moving into other fields, a PhD prepares you for a job as a medical writer. I think it it is a perfectly reasonable 
career to take after a PhD. I do not feel like I wasted my degree because I'm not a professor. Sure, I did not go to grad school with my eyes on becoming a, you know, CER medical writer. Um, but it's a great place to land. And I'm really glad that I landed there. It's there's a it's an in-demand field. You know, I have been on LinkedIn since probably since it you know first came around. I got zero interest from any recruiters or anyone really until I put medical writer on my CV. And then I still get emails or messages weekly, if not biweekly, like, hey, got this 12-month contract position. Um, so, you know, it's job security. It's a good job. It pays well. There's lots of room to move up in a company, in a small company like Global. There's a lot of opportunity to, you know, have a lot of say into your career path and where you want to go, whether you maybe you move out of writing and you get into regulatory affairs. Um, so that my message is if, if it's something you think you want to pursue one, you're not wasting your degree. And two, I don't think anyone should feel badly about moving away from the bench. Scientific writing, you are prepared well. For yeah, it's great. And, and it's, you know, you got to remember if you're in the PhD track, you spent a lot of time advancing science in general. And so, you know, you've done your piece to contribute to the scientific and academic world there. Again, you're right. It's a numbers game. The, you know, top to your professor posts are harder and harder and harder and harder to get into. And then once you get into it, it's still long hours, late nights and constantly chasing the next R01 or whatever. And it's just, it's a rough way to live. And then as a, as a regulatory medical writer, regulatory consultant, medical writer, you're contributing to society, Like we have to write these documents. These documents have to be written for medical devices to be used for patients to be treated with these medical devices or pharmaceuticals. They have to happen. And no, your name, doesn't necessarily get, you know, in the first position in the author list, or if there's even an author list, period, you don't get the credit. But if you can put your ego aside and you want to make an impact and use what you've learned, this is, I can't really, I've yet to find much better of an area to use any type of basic science or clinical PhD. Yeah, I mean, I'm super happy that we have those people that are driven to to be those those professors, and we need basic science. I mean, it's it's what it's what our jobs built on top of, right? Because we, you know, these pharmaceutical companies and these device companies are are building on the science, but a CER very much follows the scientific method. I mean, what we have a hypothesis, we do some background, we go collect data, we analyze the data, we see if our hypothesis is, you know, supported or not, and we write up the conclusions. It's a, it follows the scientific method. I'm still a scientist. I just, my, I don't, I don't have to worry about spilling ethidium bromide on my pants. I have to worry about spilling <laughs> coffee on my computer. I, my, my, my equipment is my computer and I, I read articles. I, I don't get my hands dirty as much anymore, but that's okay. Oh, that's still fantastic. A so pandemic aside, we are fully remote at global all the time. That's how the company was built. And it's one of our core principles is, you know, you should be comfortable at work. Um, how was that transition for you? Was it difficult? So I am a social person. I will admit that I occasionally miss walking down the hall and chatting with someone in person, chatting in the lunchroom or going out and grabbing 
grabbing sushi or something. But working remotely has been game changer for my work life balance, for my young family. You know, when getting kids on the bus was still a thing, I could get my kids on and off the bus. I can go take a run in the middle of the day. I mean, and and the culture at Global is is so good and flex, you know, we expect you to get your work done, but if you're getting your work done, no one cares if you disappear for an hour, you know, if you're not missing meetings, miss, disappear for an hour in the afternoon to go get a run and, and some lunch and then come back. And I mean, I think that we being able to work from home helps you. You can, I mean, I can get up early and put in a 10 hour day if I want, I don't have to go commute and wait for a building to be opened up or whatever. So yeah, working remotely has been awesome for me. We still have tools to, you know, to chat. I hit you up every once in a while for just random things just to say, hey, there's other people I talk to. You know, we have certainly a global, we have social events that we try to do remotely and that gets some some decent participation. So, you know, sometimes I miss the FaceTime with people, but if you really want the connection, you can get it even working remotely. I know it's not for everyone, but it has been for me. So Yeah, I I agree. And I I think that once you get used to it and you integrate a little bit, there definitely is social stuff that happens. I chat with you. I chat with some other people. You know, I've got like a little group of friends at Global and we don't spend a ton of time shooting the breeze, but we definitely, you know, we take time out and call each other once in a while and chat. And it's, you know, I feel connected to my colleagues, even though, you know, you're thousands of miles away, right? I still, you know, feel like I know what's going on in your life and vice versa. And, what I like about working remote, I mean, the flexibility you can't beat with things are very flexible at global, right? We got to be around for our clients and, and, and that type of thing. But there's definitely, you know, if you need to hop out for a doctor's appointment in a day and there's no client demand, nobody's going to look at you funny. It's, you know, we work as a team, but we're very accommodating to each other across time zones. And, and we do do social stuff. There is a missing component of the face to face with people. But I personally, I won't, I, I spent a lot of time in grad school and my other professional jobs. What used to drive me crazy, especially in academia was chit chat, right? If I have something to do and I really want to get it done and people just want to chat, you don't have that at global. We're all very respectful. There are some days where there, you know, people on your team want to shoot the breeze and you get to, and it's fine. And there's other days where you just want to like put your head down and get the work done. And you have that option in a remote environment. Whereas in office, I feel like there's a lot more pressure to socialize with people. And you know, when things need to get done, they need to get done. And having those conversations, you know, means that you're giving up time with your family or your friends or, or what have you, right? Time's precious. So it's really nice in the remote environment to have that option. Yeah, yeah, for sure. To wall yourself off and and get down yeah, the to best, business, best of both sure. worlds in a lot of ways. So, so thank you very much, Dan. This was very insightful. Do you have anything else you would like to add or discuss or mention? Uh no, I, I don't. I hope I I hope I painted a rosy enough picture of, of medical writing. I I I know I can be a bit of a downer that I just I didn't know what I was getting into and and I didn't think I was going to like it at first and um I think it's possible to do the right work at the wrong place and it can feel like the wrong work um but especially since finding global I I really enjoy what I do and you know, I 
when asked, I, you know, if you'd ask me that, where do I see myself in five years? I, I don't foresee myself getting out of this line of work. I mean, my, my responsibility, my role might look different, but I think medical writing has done a lot for me. It's given me a lot of opportunity and a lot of the things that I want in life as far as, uh, you know, just even compensation and, and, and it, it's been good. Medical writing has been very good to me. And I, um, I think I will, I don't see that I will be leaving anytime soon. So we soon. like to do so. something at the end of every show with every guest. And that is what I call favorite Friday night where we, I ask you what your favorite way to spend Friday night is or your favorite way to celebrate after a win, delivery of a huge deliverable, what have you. So what's your favorite way to spend Friday night? And are you the type of guy that leaves the office early on Fridays? Do you like to kind of like just shut down a little early and head out? Or do you like to wrap, make sure everything's wrapped? wrapped up tidy and clean. So you don't come back to anything on Monday, even if that means staying till six or 7 PM or. Yeah. I mean, I don't like to come into a known storm on Monday for sure, but I really, really, really try to protect my weekends as much as I can. So, you know, Fridays, I am always looking to make sure that my projects are in a really good place for the next week. Um, I, I, this job has taught me a lot of time management. I kind of have an idea of how long things take. And so um, I will work as hard as I need to on Thursday and Friday all day to make sure that come around four Eastern on Friday, I'm looking at being done. And then, you know, the kids keep me super busy. We'll go out and ride bikes, play in the yard, or maybe they have a sporting event that uh, they need to go to. And then usually weekends are working around the house, spending time with the family, maybe a movie night. But uh, yeah, I really try to protect my weekend for me. There are weeks when, when, you know, the occasional 50, 60 hour week, but those have been so rare for me. I mean, it, it's nice for my mental health that it has been and rare, global. So. The goal is for no one to work 50 to 60 hour weeks or, or it's for it to rather happen rarely. Dan, thank you again for your time. We really appreciate it. It's been great to hear your thoughts and your perspective. I hope we can do this again sometime soon. All right. Thanks, Jamie. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about my career. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chasing Compliance. And once again, a big thank you to our guests, Beth Meyer and Dan Shady for joining us today. If you have any further questions regarding the internship or would like to get in touch with any of us, please contact us through our website at www.globalrwc.com and navigate to our internship page through the career section. There you can find more details regarding the internship and an application. On part two of this episode, we'll be talking with clinicians that have moved into the regulatory space, including Dr. Jacob Hoffman, a doctor of physical therapy, and Dr. Juliet Pena, who transitioned into regulatory writing after becoming a physician. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a review, or share this with your colleagues. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast app you are listening on. With that, I thank you and I look forward to seeing you on part two of this episode.